Hello everybody, what's going on? And welcome to 1000 Voices, where we are on a mission to interview 1000 inspirational Black Britons. Now today's guest is Mac Olonge, and Mac is the CEO and founder of The Equal Group. The Equal Group take a data-driven approach in order to tackle and improve diversity and inclusion with the corporations that they work with. In this interview, we hear more about Mac's story, his upbringing and his life before starting The Equal Group. And it's very interesting to hear how these different experiences that he's gone through have weaved together and led to him founding the business that he's founded now. Mac shares with us a load of takeaways that we can all take away and apply to ourselves in whichever industry we operate. So whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a creative, whether you're a professional, whether you're someone just wanting to hear an extremely inspirational story, then you're definitely in the right place right now. So without further ado, let's get into this interview. So this is 1000 Voices and here we have Mac Alonga. Hello, hello. Good afternoon, Mac. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Tony? Good. I'm good. Thank you very much for coming to the podcast. Very much appreciated. I've been looking forward to this conversation and I love the work you and the team are doing with the Equal Group. So happy, man. Very happy to get you on. Like, likewise, likewise. Um, yeah, as, as I said, I think you, you and the team are doing a great job here as well. No, thank you. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. So what we always like to do when we start off is to start off, you know, chronologically and look at your childhood. So just to begin and kick things off, can you talk about just paint a picture of what your childhood looked like, your upbringing? And also, um, have you got any insights into what role you feel your childhood has played in the person you are today? Yeah, great question. Um, So I was born in Liverpool, 1986 to a pair of Nigerian immigrants. So they came to this country in the 70s looking for better opportunities, better way of life. Um, they were both well-educated, both experienced in, in Nigeria, but when they came to this country, they faced quite a hostile environment and they were told that their education wasn't relevant here and that their experience wasn't relevant also, which if you kind of go back um, to the context of that doesn't even make sense. You know, Nigeria was a British colony, so the education system was inherently British. The organisations that were running there were inherently British, so there's no um, reasoning as to why that would even make sense. But long story short, they re-upskilled themselves, um, both got UK experience kind of through fortitude and, and grit and determination, um, went back to kind of to university, um, got UK qualifications. My dad actually did a PhD in his field, which was town planning, um, and then embarked on, on various careers as well as raising kids. Um, so I'm one of four. Um, we've all grown up in this country and we've all been educated in this country. Um, but my childhood, as I said, so I spent um, the first kind of five or six years of my life in Liverpool. Um, don't remember too much of it, but I do remember kind of a sense of community. I think Liverpool at the time was a little bit divided in terms of the African community as well as kind of the um, the, the rest of the wider white British population. Um, and it was where I experienced my first, I guess, instance of racism in the playground. So at the age of, of four, um, a, a, I think a, a ginger guy came up to me and was like, so I made a comment basically about my skin tone, said something along the lines of your, your face is like chocolate or something, something like that, um, which was weird for me at the time and I didn't really know what to say, um, didn't really understand it. Um, but that kind of gave you um, a little bit of a view as to how 
early on you experienced race and racism as, as a black person growing up in the UK. Um, moved from Liverpool to, to London or South East London slash Kent um, at kind of six um, and yeah grew up in kind of a, a very diverse community so um, growing up alongside kind of Roma Gypsies, um, Indian, Sikh, Hindu, Muslim, um, kind of people from all walks of life and I think when you grow up in that environment you kind of take for granted the fact that um, that isn't necessarily the norm for everybody um, and being from kind of a working class background you also don't realise that um, being working class or being poverty, being in poverty isn't necessarily um, a, a great thing. As a kid you, you kind of just know what you know. Um, the various experiences of kind of racism throughout my childhood as well and I think that kind of shaped um, the definitely my formative years in terms of how I understood myself, how I understood my place in society um, and I guess the the contrast uh, for secondary school I went to a grammar school um, which was in an area called Willing um, which was kind of five or six miles from where Stephen Lawrence was killed. Stephen Lawrence was killed in 1994 I started going to the school in 1993 but the school was actually located in an area that was kind of well known for racism it was previously the headquarters of the British National Party um, and kind of racial tension was always a very present reality. Um, so I remember growing up in that environment and kind of some of the things that you were exposed to, um, as well as the fact that it was a grammar school, I think gave me an insight into um, how kind of the middle class and upper class live versus how the working class live. Um, but yeah, it was a very, very interesting upbringing, very varied in terms of that cultural dynamic between being deeply African within, um, deeply deeply Nigerian, deeply Yoruba in my house um, and then kind of existing in this British working class, middle class environment. Yeah, that's very interesting. I was going to say actually that it's a very sort of varied upbringing. You've grown up in all these different types of communities. You've got the Liverpool experience. I know you're young, but you know, during your formative years, You've come to London, now you're in a super diverse environment, then you've gone to a school in Welling, the grammar school. I'm guessing, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that wasn't as diverse as the community that you're living in at the time as well. Absolutely right. Um, definitely not. Um, definitely not. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting, all of these different backgrounds and experiences that have, um, you know, that have contributed to who you are today. At that, When you were going to that school, when you were younger, and it was a year before Stephen Lawrence's death, and there was all the racial tension there already, what was that experience? Was do you remember what that period was like? Did things was there a shift or anything like that at, around that you know ninety four in school? Yeah, so so I went to the school three years after Stephen Lawrence was killed, um, but obviously the investigations into Stephen Lawrence's death were were protracted and and um, unnecessarily so. But there was a, a kind of tangible sense of, of fear and kind of um, racism within that area within that environment, you know. Um, so Wellin is very close to, to Eltham, so Eltham's where he was killed. Um, and Eltham was essentially for a lot of the time growing up a little bit of a no-go area. Like you just didn't venture into that area as, as a black person. Like what would you be doing in that area? Um, and I remember there was an incident in 
my first year of, of secondary school where one of the we were talking about somehow I got talking about Stephen Lawrence and the the trial I think it was in the press at the time um, and one of the girls who was from Eltham said something like he deserved it he was he was in a gang um, and I just remember being like super super angry at that statement to say like there was this great injustice that had been done and there was a feeling in some parts of that community that it could be justified you know for a group of white guys to to kill in in um you know in, in such a, a savage way a young man um and to say that it's justified is is absolutely apparent so um there was always that tension i think add, added to that um, for me growing up there was a very real sense of injustice in the way that I was viewed within a, a minority within this kind of quote-unquote elite school um, you know t teachers demonstrating what now is you know with term as racism but back then as an 11 12 13 year old you don't really have the language you don't really have the ability to articulate why you're being treated differently or why you're being singled out um, for essentially similar patterns of behaviour, similar, similar levels of performance or, or whatever it is, you know, kids are kids, are kids essentially. Um, but the moment that there are differences in the way that certain behaviours are treated, we can then start to build up patterns in terms of what racism or structural racism looks like in that context. Wow, interesting. That's that's nuts, man. Especially that comment, um, him being in the gang. Whether he is or if he isn't, that has nothing to do with the fact that he was brutally killed, which is absolutely crazy. No justification or anything like that. Um, nuts, man. Can you talk? So after you know your upbringing, schooling experience, you've gone to work in the city. Uh, can you talk about what that experience was like and um, what exp how that has um, what's the word inspired you to go ahead and found the Equal Group afterwards? Yeah, really, really good question. And, um, you know, to some extent, this feels like a, a little bit of a therapy session and, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of respect to you for, for positioning the question. But I think it's, it's, it's kind of more of the same, you know. So you grow up in an environment, especially my secondary school education, whereby um, injustice is like a common theme in the background in terms of um, being singled out and being um, made to understand that you're different. Um, I think that palpable feeling of difference was something that I was definitely aware of going into the workplace. So as you said, I, I kind of started my career in 2008 in the energy sector. And the energy sector, <coughs> for the most part, lacks diversity. I think I was <coughs> excuse me, really privileged to work for a small organ smallish organization so um, at the time I joined we were about 60 members of, of staff but there were great levels of diversity um, I remember joining and being one of I think four black men at the time um, which for a team of, of 60 in the energy sector is pretty good um, but then a lot of my role was industry facing, so I'd often have to go to, to meet, meetings, uh, cross-sector industry forums, um, and being the only black person, being the only minority sometimes, being the only person under the age of, of 35 at the time, 
um, being one of a, a, a few people that didn't go to private school or Oxford or Cambridge and I'm not necessarily talking about just rooms full of like 10, 15 people, I'm often talking about rooms full of like two, 300 people. Um, so it was very isolating in the early days um, and then added to that kind of when you look um, up above, you know, I've always been one of these people that has tried to seek out mentors and tried to seek out people that were more experienced to, to gain knowledge and understanding from. Um, and that was just lacking in the energy sector, so there weren't really visible role models that looked like me or people that I could relate to. Um, and I guess the more I kind of went down that path in terms of energy consultancy, the more I realised that things weren't changing. Um, so there's a, I guess, a dynamic sometimes that is expressed that, you know, when you diversify entry-level positions, then that diversity filters up and, and over time you, you change things. I was probably seeing the opposite, where people would come in at entry-level or they'd be from diverse communities, but then they'd leave within two or three years. And that isn't something that is sustainable and that definitely doesn't add to this narrative around how we change things from a long-term perspective. Um, so that was one of the things that kind of influenced me to, to start the Equal Group. The second was really around the, the work that I was doing. So um, my work as a regulatory consultant was really to help executive teams to understand the regulatory landscape, um, working with them to really use data in a meaningful way, so quantitative and qualitative data to understand where they were currently um, and what changes needed to be implemented going forward, so looking 5, 10, 15 years into the future to understand how to, to maximise their position um, in relation to the regulatory landscape. And I guess I looked around at kind of the diversity and inclusion arena, um, the industry, the sector at the time, and there really wasn't anything meaningful happening. There wasn't um, data being collected. There wasn't kind of data-driven strategies. What I came across was really shallow, really superficial, um, annual unconscious bias training and those kind of things. And um, I really had a sense that unless we change things from a data-driven perspective, things just aren't going to change. Or even if things are changing, we haven't really got that. Um, critical ability to assess where we are now versus where we were last year, three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, etc. Um, so really data formed the the core of what I wanted to do in this, this space. Um, and then, th you know, in addition to that, it was kind of off the back of conversations I had with, with leaders that I had a really great relationship with in the sector to say, is this an issue that everybody sees or am I being super sensitive based on my own lived experience? And it was something that everybody saw, but there was a little bit of a political fear in terms of not wanting to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. You know, for the most part, these were middle-aged, middle-class white men, um, heterosexual um, and also able-bodied for the most part. So there was a fear that because they don't have necessarily the lived experience to talk meaningfully about this, they, they felt kind of ill-equipped to to do that um, role modelling or talking or um, visible advocacy for um, diversity and inclusion and one of the things that I had uh, kind of conversations with people about at a leadership level was to say you know if there was more data both quantitative and qualitative 
that would then allow you to, to really speak to that data and um, to some extent take some of the emotion out of this because I think this diversity and inclusion can be quite a, an emotional subject but I think once you start talking about data, once you start talking about experiences, once you start talking about what it is that you're seeing, it allows people to talk meaningfully about that. That's, yeah, super interesting. And it's quite interest, interesting to hear about how all of these different threads are woven together, which have led you to found the equal group. So we're talking about from childhood, growing up in that typically, you know, Nigerian Yoruba household, you get that sense of identity from there, probably like a, even a sense of community, um, your household, maybe family, a bit of a wider community and all of that. You've got that there. But then you step out of your house and you go to school and it's a complete contrast, massive contrast. And then you step out of that environment and you go to a workplace. And again, you're it's not you're not getting that same kind of community identity type feeling. You're one of only a few. Um and all of that. So it's interesting to see how all these different threads are woven together um, and ladies have found the equal group. And something you said that was quite interesting towards the end there was how uh, a lot of these people you're speaking with didn't necessarily fall into any of these diverse boxes. So they weren't, uh, they were able-bodied, heterosexual, middle-aged, white men, etc. They don't fall into any box and therefore they're not comfortable talking about anything like that. How have you been able to get people who um, aren't as comfortable to talk about these kind of things to one talk about it um in a very candid sense of yourself and also um are you seeing them now um having these kind of conversations within their own firms or not yeah re really good questions um i think the the great myth sometimes around diversity is that there are diverse people and then there are people that aren't diverse and the reality is that we're all diverse um when we start to to unpick kind of the layers uh, so to speak we understand our differences in terms of upbringing likes preferences um, experiences things that we've done you know the, the things that we think about the way that we naturally position ourselves there's so many layers to it and I think sometimes it can be um, quite restrictive in terms of the way people view things so looking at things purely from a protected characteristic perspective um, kind of encourages people to put themselves into boxes that are very narrow and very focused around um, you know what are known as the protected characteristics which is heavily linked to the Equality Act um, but then when we start to talk about equality diversity inclusion in a broader sense it allows people to really self-reflect and, and think about the things that they um, the things that are true to them that can essentially um, either encourage or empower them to speak about diversity inclusion in, in a meaningful and more holistic way. Um, I think one of the great things about reframing diversity inclusion is that it now becomes a responsibility for everybody to talk about it, a responsibility for everybody to start to notice who's in the room, who isn't in the room, you know, when you're making decisions. And one of the great things I often say about the, the energy sector um, probably shouldn't have said one of the great things I don't know if it's great but <laughs> one of the things I say all the time um, is that we all consume energy you know whether you're black white Latino whether you're heterosexual whether you're part of the LGBTQ plus community whether you're able-bodied whether you're you're um, disabled um, we all consume electricity we all consume gas to some extent um, so why doesn't that thread follow through to, to speak to who has 
ownership for decisions and how decisions are made or who crafts our regulations or who looks at um, investment in the energy sector like why is it that only a certain characteristic or demographic of individuals are involved in decision making but we're all consumers there's a clear imbalance there so that's something that we have to re rectify and it takes all of us having these conversations to rectify it um, the second half of your question was about kind of the, the way that um, things are being talked about within companies and across sectors I think one of the things that I'm most proud of in the work that we do is that we don't just work with individual organisations but we also work across sectors because and I guess that, that links back to, <clears throat> to my experience to say um, as, as I said I had the benefit of my early years being um, within an organisation that was relatively diverse so I kind of had a glimpse of the way things could be from um, a, a demographic perspective but also from an inclusion perspective but then when I left that organisation and went to other parts of the sector um, I was you know met with the sad reality that this isn't a diverse sector and whilst you can have pockets of diversity in different organisations or even different functions or departments of an organisation if it's not widespread that limits you from an individual perspective so if I'm to move from a company that's greater diversity inclusion to a company that isn't you essentially take a couple of steps back and you have to deal with um, things that nobody should have to deal with in terms of discrimination and microaggressions and all of these other things that come with organisations that are typically not diverse um, so as I, as I was saying one of the things that we're, I'm, I'm most proud of um, about the work that we do is that we do a lot of cross sector work and that's really about encouraging um, the sector as a whole to deal with the issues that the sector needs to deal with as well as organisations dealing with the issues that are more um, intrinsic to them as individual organisations. Cool. What's the vision? What kind of a workplace do you want to see in the future? That's, that's an amazing question. Um, so in terms of the vision, it's for... Um, so our vision as an organisation essentially is to enable a business world without bias. So that means that where your chances, your opportunities, your ability to progress in an organisation has no bearing or no direct relationship to who you are as an individual. And that's something that we absolutely don't see in today's society. So um, we are well aware that if you are able-bodied, um, you have a much greater chance of success than somebody that is disabled. Um, if you are white, middle-aged, middle-class and male, you generally have a, a greater opportunity, a greater chance of progression than um, individuals that fall outside of those demographic characteristics. So the, the vision really is to unpick all of that, to create means for people to progress in a way that is not necessarily linked to who they are from a demographic perspective. That's really cool. On more of like a general business um, side of things, what have you learned about running a business that you didn't read about in any kind of a book or watching any seminar before you started this business? Um, that's a great question. Um, I feel like I've truly learned that people are any business's greatest asset. And I think it's one of these things that is, is often said and probably a, a ridiculous answer to your question because your question is really framed around what I didn't learn in books and 
um, it's something that everyone always says, everyone always kind of goes on about it, but you only really appreciate the reality of it when you start running your own business. Um, I think to, to directly answer your question in a way that, that the question was framed, um, I don't think enough is said about how hard it is for you to run a business that so I'll, I'll rephrase the answer sorry how hard it is to run a business when there aren't necessarily blueprints for the type of business that you want to run at the scale you want to run it so I say that to say I am unaware of um, many professional services organizations or management consultancies that are run by black people or people of color more generally that have hit you know 20 million pounds in turnover or 50 million pounds in turnover or 100 million pounds in turnover and for an organization that has those kinds of targets and those kinds of aims and objectives we're essentially having to to break the mold in various different places um, from how we do things internally to how we're perceived in the marketplace um, there is a very different narrative that is often portrayed about kind of um, what black people can and can't do and I think the more you deviate from what is, is the, the stereotypical standard for um, your demographic, the harder it is, if that makes sense. And I think one of the things that is really positive about I think where we are as a society now is that we are starting to see more role models and we're trying to we're starting to see more visibility of people that are breaking the mould. So, um, yeah, that's a really long and convoluted way of answering your question, but um, I think you know the, the the just the lack of role modelling that is available for you as a, a as a black man um, running a professional services business. Yeah, no, that's good. It's a good answer. Thank you very much. And so, with you, so you started a business, and there isn't necessarily like a blueprint to go off like that. How did you start it? Did you have to like seek out some mentorship, or just you know take information from here, information from there, and just put it all together or something like that yes yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm deeply 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 privileged um, to have the, the background that I've had um, so to have worked in the, the energy sector in um, consultancy firms both from a, a SME perspective as well as um, a global organisation perspective that's given me a really good insight into the way things work or, or kind of structures and processes that need to be established um, but there there's also elements of seeking out mentorship so um, as part of our core team um, from pretty much day one we've had um, David who used to be the CEO of the, the first management consultancy that I worked for um, so he serves as our chair but has been uh, fundamental in kind of providing some of that mentorship and um, just a different set of perspectives and experiences um, that have provided a good balance over the years. Um, but I've also been seeking out mentorship and, and kind of expertise from people that have been there and done it. Um, and then, yeah, as, as you suggested in the question, there have been large elements of trying to piece it together as you go. So you take inspiration from, from podcasts or, or vlogs or um you know formal education um and this is why I've, I've got a lot of respect for what you're doing here because the more people 
are aware of people's stories that the more informed they can be and um, can you know, tap into some of that knowledge and wisdom and um, as well as seeking out mentors I do try to seek out mentees so, so who are people that I can pass my experience onto as well so, so trying to be a little bit more visible as well. Last question on this business side of things if you were to give any piece of advice like a one major piece of advice to someone who's looking to start their own business their first major business what would that be? That's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think so. I'm, I'm gonna not answer your question. I'm gonna. I will answer your question, but I'll, I'll provide a little bit of context first. Um, I think one of the great injustices around um, entrepreneurship or business generally is that um, people have this theory that entrepreneurship is for everybody and I think to some extent it has been glamorised by the media and everybody looks at things like Dragon's Den or The Apprentice and has these rose tinted glasses um, view of, of entrepreneurship and business and I think one of the things that is so apparent especially in the black community is that we're great at starting businesses but not necessarily great at scaling and, and sustaining those businesses. Um, but in direct answer to your question, I think that one piece of advice would be to really dig deep within yourself to understand what it is that you want to do and how much you're willing to sacrifice to achieve it. Um, and I think those are two really important questions because a lot of people want things but aren't willing to sacrifice anything to get it. Um, and that is essentially not what entrepreneurship is about. You, there has to come a certain element of sacrifice and I think the the danger of the glamorization of entrepreneurship is that people don't highlight the, the sacrifice enough. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. So I've got some reflective type questions here. These ones might be a bit more difficult to answer. So with them, feel free if you need to take a second to think about it a bit or whatever, feel free, take your time. Um, but these are my favourite questions personally anyways. <laughs> so, all right. I can tell, I can tell by the way you're smiling and laughing that they're going to be really difficult. So you, know, you said you said that it feels like therapy. If that before felt like therapy, this is definitely going to feel like therapy. So yeah, let's go. <laughs> All right. So what's been the most important lesson you've learned in your life so far? What was your life like before learning it, and what's it been like after you've learned this lesson? That is a wild question. Um, so so. One of the one of my favourite pieces of advice, and I was I was gonna say this in relation to the last question, but I'll say it now anyway. But um, one of my favourite pieces of advice is to not take advice, and it sounds really stupid, but it's um, something that I've clung onto because I feel like people only give advice from their perspective, from their lived experience everything that they've gone through so that advice is always shaped in a certain way <clears throat> um, and they can only give advice based on um, what their own understanding or their perspective of the world is and it's something that I think Jay-Z said in an interview once in terms of you know when he was doing his his music thing I think one of his uncles said that you know you'll never sell a million records and he's like I've sold a million records a million times but for for him, as, for the uncle as an individual, he just couldn't imagine it, couldn't perceive it. Um, 
so yeah, I always cling on to that, um, you know, not taking advice or only taking it so far. What my life was like before that, um, I guess I was very trusting of other people's advice, um, trusting that they had the best intentions for me or, or that they were experienced enough, especially when it came to kind of senior individuals or mentors that had been there and done that. Um, very trusting of their, their wealth of experience and their understanding of the world. Um, what my life was like after, I have come to realise that to some extent, everybody, like universally, is making it up as they go along. You know, I've had the privilege of recently becoming, not recently, a year and a half ago, becoming a parent. And I think that experience shapes how you think about your own parents. To say, actually, there's no blueprint for parenthood. There's no blueprint for life. So taking advice is, is sometimes limiting yourself to other people's experiences and other people's viewpoints of the world as they see it, as they understand it. That's really good. First of all, congrats on the parenthood. That's, um, yeah, congrats, major congrats on that. And secondly, that piece of advice is really good, I think, because everybody is going to have their own opinion on how you should run your business and how you should live your life on the decisions you should make. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of these opinions can be conflicting. So that's that's definitely something really good to take on board. And I think, um, I think sometimes, like I said, we can be a bit too trusting and then that can take us away from our own path, what we should be doing. And yeah, it's not always best thing to take everybody's opinion on board. So that's really good. All right. Next question. What's been the most defining moment of your life so far? Again, really good question. Most defining moment of my life so far? I think the decision to end my career in the energy sector and start the equal group. Um, it was a decision that I didn't take lightly. It was, and again, comes back to what I was saying before about kind of sacrifice. Like, I was very 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 comfortable in the energy sector um, financially in terms of my skill set in terms of the work that I was doing in terms of the trajectory of my career like there was I would have been in a much better better quote unquote financial position um, potentially life position had I stayed in the energy sector um, but for me and I think there came a point in time where I was really questioning purpose, I was really questioning what the the legacy of my life would be, could be. Um, and I guess I came to the realisation that my I don't feel like I was put on this earth to just sit behind the desk all day and make a lot of rich companies richer or rich people richer. Um, I felt like there was... A, a desire in me or, or something that was placed in me to, to really right some of the wrongs that I'd experienced and I think this this is also why I really appreciate this conversation because as I said it has been a little bit like therapy to really reflect on the formative years, my educational experience, my experience within the workplace and draw that common thread for you to say and this is something that I reflected on at the time of making that decision to say um, I want to leave the world in a better position than um, than I met it. So for me it is a win if my son or my kids don't have to go through what I've been through in terms of racism, discrimination and all kinds of obstacles and barriers that I've faced in the workplace. That's it, nice. 
If you could live one day of your life all over again, uh, what day would that be? Oh, that's a really good question as well. I feel like if I answer this, I might upset some people. Um, if I could live one life again, one, one day of my life again, what would it be? Uh, oh, there's so many, there's so many. Um, this is gonna sound really sad. Um, because, alright, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say a couple of things that have been through my mind and then I'm gonna land on one. So, um, one was my, my wedding day, day I got married, just just an amazing time, had such fun. Um, connecting with all, all the people that have been involved in my life over the years was just amazing. We had um, just a sick party. Um, the next one I was gonna say was the day that my son was born, I think that was life changing. Um, but then if I have kids in the future they're going to look at that and say um you know it's a little bit technical um and then the, the third one was um i'm a liverpool fan so like the 2006 champions league final was like the greatest game of football that has ever been played um and i think that day watching that like the ups and the downs was incredible um so i'll say one of those three um i'm probably going to be political and pick my wedding day so let's go with that. Good. I'm a Liverpool fan as well. This is it. I, I knew there was something special about you. <laughs> These past few years, I've been really enjoying my football. I tune in every single week. Before that, oh my gosh, struggling to get into top four, <laughs> languishing just above mid table, all of that. Like it's been tough. <laughs> it really has. It really has. Yeah. Long, long may continue as well. We need it. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Uh, what gets you excited about life now? Um, mostly my son, because I feel like there's such an innocence about childhood and the way that he experiences um, the world, like the things that he likes to do, you know, getting excited about the food that he eats and the places that he goes and the experiences that he has. Um, I think with age comes cynicism, so we can be quite cynical as, as old people, um, but there is none or an absence of that cynicism from kids. So I think trying to see things through through his eyes, through his perspective, is something that has really changed my life. And um, yeah, the excitement that he gets gives me excitement as well. That's nice. All right. And last question. What does the next chapter in your own story look like? Yeah, really, really great question again. Um, so I've, I've been thinking about this quite seriously over the last couple of months. So our um, business year runs from September to August. So we're really starting to plan um, what we do for the next year. And really is about, for me, understanding my role as the organisation grows. And I think there's this um, this change that happens as, as any organisation scales from a leadership perspective to say that you step back a little bit from the front lines from delivery and start focusing more on um, the strategic elements of, of kind of coordinating and leading the business so I'm really trying to understand what are the areas that I need to improve in improve on as a leader um, what are the ways that I need to get better at communicating the vision and, and trusting other people to um, help with that vision um, as I said I think people are, are the greatest asset of any business and for me it's really about seeking out great people to work alongside um, and ensuring that we as an organisation don't lose, lose sight of 
our purpose, um, our goals and essentially our culture because we want to create a culture that we can role model to the clients that we work with. Um, so yeah, for me the next stage really looks um, like per a lot of personal development and a lot of working on myself. All right, that's that. Nice. All all done. That's a thousand voices interview all wrapped up. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. No, thank you for inviting me. It's it's been it's been an amazing conversation. Um yeah, more power to you and, and everything that you're trying to do here. Thank you, for sure. All good, all good. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation anyway. It's been so good, man. So many different nuggets of things to take away from it. So it's been great, man. Thank you so much. Uh before we wrap up. If anyone wants to keep up to date with you, with the Equal Group and that kind of thing, how can they keep up to date? And uh, do you have any any final words you want to say as well? Yeah, um, I'll start with final words. I think final words, um, yeah, just be intentional about creating the world that you want to live in. Um, I think that's something that we sometimes get told growing up, but probably don't get told enough um, when we're, we're growing and in positions to, to do it. Um, so yeah, I think we have to be really intentional about how we live life. Um, in terms of connecting, um, I'm like super rubbish on social media, um, but I guess I'm a little bit more active on LinkedIn. So so look at, look me up on LinkedIn. Um, but uh, the Equal Group is, is amazing at social media. So um, you can uh, follow the Equal Group everywhere. So at, at the Equal Group um, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and um, yeah, what's the other one? Instagram. To LinkedIn and Instagram. Yeah, so everywhere at the Equal Group. All right, nice. That's that. So once again, thank you for coming to the podcast. Very much appreciated it. But that's that for now. So everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. This is One Thousand Voices. We had Mac, the founder of the Equal Group, and for now, we're up. Okay, great. That's the interview done. Thank you for tuning in, and we really hope that you've enjoyed this interview today. As always, it's great to hear back from the community and feel free to leave us a comment, a review, a rating, wherever it is listening to this. Just let us know what you thought about this interview. As always, the next podcast is going to be released next week, Tuesday. So follow us on all our social media pages at 1000 Voices UK in order to keep up to date with that before it drops. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us in your preferred podcasting platform and or on YouTube as well, because we'll be dropping visuals there. But that's that for now, people. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, this is 1000 Voices and we're out.